Hey podcast listeners, this is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast. There is a difference, I believe, between complaint and dissent. Intelligent, well-formulated dissent. And I, I believe the latter is getting rare, uh, or more rare in American society today. But this conversation deals with really the life work of Dr. Andrew Basevich, a professor emeritus of international relations from Boston University and a Vietnam and Gulf War veteran. Uh, this is a very intelligent descent to the uses of American military power. In 2007, Dr. Basevich gave a university lecture called The Illusions of Managing History. And uh, that lecture was on the basis of the work of theologian uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, who wrote a book, The Irony of American History. And Dr. Basevich argues for the contemporary relevance of Niebuhr and the need for a Niebuhrian revolution. And so this conversation sort of traces Dr. Basevich's experience in the military, uh, his transition to academic life, and how along the way, once the Cold War ended, he realized that the uses of American military power weren't changing, and so he opened up to this Niburian critique and started to realize uh, how uh, American military power was uh, persistently overextended and was based on the principles of expansionism and imperialism. So this is a fantastic discussion. It's so compelling, in fact, that we decided to leave it unedited. So uh, without much more ado, uh, this is the conversation with Dr. Basevich. We wanted to thank him for taking the time to have it. Thanks for doing this, by the way. So I, uh, after growing up in the Midwest uh, in the 50s to the mid-60s, had to make a decision about where to go to college for reasons that are probably not relevant to to this discussion. Mm -hmm. I chose to go to the military academy and graduated uh, in 1969. Now, attendance at a service academy is quote-unquote free in the sense that you don't pay tuition, room, and board. But when you graduate, uh, you graduate with an obligation to serve some number of years, basically paying back the government for your education. So I was commissioned in the Army in 1969, and my obligation was for five years. During that five years, I served in Vietnam. During that five years... I got married, and we began to have children. When my obligation was up in 1974, uh, the economy wasn't particularly strong. I didn't have a lot of confidence that I could go out and get a job and take care of my family. Uh, The Army was offering inducements to stay in, and lo and behold, 23 years later, I had become a career military officer. Finally retired in 1992, needed to get a job. We had four children at that point. Didn't know exactly what I was going to do. Vaguely hoped that because I had gotten a PhD in history while in the Army and that I had written a couple of books, vaguely hoped that I could find my way into some role in academic life. Really, through the kindness of uh, a handful of friends, I eventually got a job at Boston University, first in the what was then the IR department, which no longer exists, having been replaced by the Pardee School, also then subsequently receiving an appointment in the history department. 
And it was a great opportunity to be part of the Boston University uh, family. I mean, wonderful faculty colleagues, and uh, I found the students very uh, stimulating. But also, uh, being a member of, a, of the faculty at a major research university gave me ample time to begin to write. I had arrived at BU in 1998, was already preoccupied with the direction of U.S. policy in the wake of the Cold War. And of course, three years later in 2001, with the 9-11 attacks, U.S. policy took a rather drastic turn as we embarked upon the so-called global war on terrorism, which led in short order to the catastrophically mistaken and misguided invasion of Iraq. All of that together, I think, uh, imparted uh, a certain energy and direction to my concerns about U.S. foreign policy, about what I saw as a growing penchant for militarism, and what I saw as a deeply flawed civil-military relationship. And that by, when I use that phrase, I mean the connection or the eroding connection or the fraudulent connection between the military and uh, the American people more broadly. Mm -hmm. So all of that led to a bunch of articles and a few books. I had actually read Niebuhr's Irony of American, uh, Irony of American History quite a few years earlier. And I have to say, I didn't understand it. Mm -hmm. I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't mean in a sense I couldn't understand the words, uh, but I don't think I was able to appreciate the importance of the argument that he was making when I first read it. And I think it was only probably the third time I read the book that I came to a, a proper appreciation and uh, therefore made, it the, made him uh, the subject of my university lecture uh, and used irony of American history in a couple of the courses uh, that I w was teaching at Boston University. I'm glad to hear you say it took a, a couple times to understand it because as I've kind of been uh, parsing my way through this uh, over the last couple months, it's a there are a lot of difficult things to grasp. But before we get right to Niebuhr, I'd like to ask, you mentioned the breakdown of the civil-military relationship, and you wrote uh, in, in a book called The Long War, an article that describes the degree to which the American public was unaware of a very significant fight uh, that was happening between the executive branch and the military uh, in the post-World War II time with, uh, with Harry Truman uh, attempting to consolidate the departments, uh, and that eventually leading to um, what many people know is Eisenhower's speech about the military-industrial complex. Um, can you talk about that development for a minute and the way um, American military power, as, as Rachel Maddow has mentioned or has described it, has become unmoored um, from, from civil, um, re civil restraints on that power? I don't think it's a good question. I don't think you can answer the question without a, 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 an appreciation of the larger trajectory of U.S. military history. Um, 
from the founding of the Republic in 1776, the American people have had, had harbored a pretty healthy uh, skepticism with regard to armies. Remember, one of the important elements in prompting the revolution was popular animosity directed toward the so-called redcoats who were quartered in Boston. And that uh, feeling very much carried over into the U.S. policy, U.S. military policy once, once the revolution had succeeded. And to make a long story short, Americans up to probably World War II or the end of World War II didn't much cotton to standing armies, uh, believed as the founders had believed that they posed a threat to liberty. And therefore, U.S. military history up to that time had, when, when the United States had, had found itself needing a big army, the United States more or less extemporized that army, uh, usually relying on volunteers. And this is what happened in 1812 and 1846 and 1861 and that volunteer force that had been created to fight it basically dissolved and went away. It was only after World War II, with the onset of the Cold War, that U.S. leaders made a commitment to maintaining more or less permanently large-scale combat-ready forces. This, was, this hadn't happened before. And it also uh, basically provided military leaders during so-called peacetime with a level of clout and influence that they had never had before. And so the, the, the episode that you just referred to, the relationship between President Harry Truman, who was president from 1945 until January of 1953, his relationship with the senior generals and admirals, was a very troubled one. Tremendous tensions. Tensions over whether or not to create this thing that we now call the Department of Defense, therefore compromising the independence of the armed services. Tensions over who would control nuclear weapons. Tensions over the size of the budget, the military budget. Tensions over, over race. And in all these issues, uh, Basically, the generals and the admirals mounted a resistance to what Truman wanted to do. And I think that the, this, this period of really not widely recognized, but almost continuous civil-military conflict at the very highest levels, I think it, it only ended with really the, with the Korean War. Uh, the Korean War removed any doubt about whether or not we were going to maintain that large and very costly military uh, uh, establishment. Basically, the generals had won. Uh, there was less to fight about. 
On the other hand, it does not mean that civil-military relations at the top remained harmonious, was harmonious after that. I mean, we had the, the incredible public explosion between Truman and Douglas MacArthur mm-hmm. uh, in 1951 that led to MacArthur being fired. Of course, some might say, well, that demonstrates the sanctity of the principle of, of civilian control. Mm-hmm. We had a We had an insubordinate general and the president, fired him. Uh, but I think that's that's too simple a telling of the story because the, the truth is that the Truman paid an incredibly high political price for for doing that. You know, there's no reason why, why Truman could not have won, run for re-election in 1952. Why didn't he? He didn't because he knew that he didn't have a chance of winning. And one of the reasons he couldn't win is because of the unpopularity of his decision to fire MacArthur. Do you see... Uh Eisenhower's victory as somehow an extension of well, the see, this is Well, see, this is another f- forgotten part of our military history. And, and the forgotten part is that, that... So Ike becomes president in January 1953. He is himself a professional soldier. He was on, he was on active duty, hmm. uh, really, until he became the president because he was a supreme allied commander in Europe when he decided to run for the presidency. Mm-hmm. And he decided as president that he was not going to put up with the kind of shenanigans that Truman had faced. And yet he, even five-star President Eisenhower, also faced an incredible amount of, of resistance from the military, particularly from the army. The centerpiece of, of the Eisenhower administration's approach to the containment policy, you know, of using military power to try to deter the Soviets from... Uh, acting aggressively and to you know, allow the passage of time to bring about the, uh, the internal collapse of the Soviet empire. Eisenhower's theme, Eisen, Eisenhower was committed to containment, but was worried about two high levels of, of military spending hurting the American economy. He saw the competition with the Soviet Union as primarily an economic and a political competition, not primarily a military competition. So Eisenhower's problem was, well, how, how am I going to provide a, a military component of containment without breaking the bank? And his answer was nuclear weapons. That by building up an, an enormously powerful uh, nuclear strike force, uh, that that would provide an economical approach to containment. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- whatever the merits of that, that uh, argument... It created winners and losers among the armed forces. In other words, in the 1950s, if you were in the Air Force, particularly if you were in the strategic bombing component of the Air Force, I mean, the the flow of money was endless. If you were in the Army, however, which existed to fight ground combat, money was hard to come by. So Ike, the former Army officer, basically... uh, established a, uh, a military strategy that found his former service being impoverished and his former service didn't just sit around and accept that. Right. So particularly when uh, General Matthew Ridgway was the Army Chief of Staff from 1953 to 1955, the Army mounted first a covert and then a quite overt resistance to 
massive retaliation, arguing that, the, the, and really the foundation of Ridgway's argument was that massive retaliation was immoral. Mm-hmm. He said, look, if you're gonna if you're gonna base your strategy on a threat, a threat of annihilation, then that threat has to be serious. It has to be realistic. It's not simply you're gonna build a bunch of Air Force bombers. You have to actually be ready to pull that trigger. And he argued that any such war of annihilation would be profoundly immoral. Uh, I would agree with that. I think many people would agree with it today. But that wasn't what Eisenhower wanted to hear, because what Eisenhower, what Eisenhower was saying is, I'm never going to do that. Mm-hmm. I have no intention of fighting World War III. I have no intention of annihilating the Soviet Union. But my aim is to pose such a threat that it won't be necessary for me to do that. At any rate, so we have uh, a Ridgeway in the Army mounting this campaign of resistance that ended up with Ridgeway being quietly uh, fired. So when we fast forward to 1961, as Eisenhower's about to leave office, and he makes his famous farewell address that that warns of the influence of the military-industrial complex, I think it's in part he's, he's, he's issuing that warning because he understands from Truman's experience and from his own experience with people like Ridgeway uh, that the military itself is not fully subordinate. And he also was tacitly acknowledging uh, that, that he had lost control of, the, uh, of, 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 of massive retaliation, mm-hmm. that the Air Force, not least of all General Curtis LeMay, basically in cahoots with members of Congress, had built thousands of more nuclear weapons than Eisenhower thought necessary, had built hundreds more bombers, dozens more bases than Eisenhower thought necessary. So here he was, the commander-in-chief, nominally the guy in charge, the military nominally subordinate, uh, but in fact uh, his actual control over national security policy had been compromised, and that's what that warning was all about. It's interesting that we're having this conversation just as there is an interesting contest going on between the present-day United States military and President Trump with regard to Syria. So President Trump, typically, without having thought about this in advance and thinking through the implications, sort of blurted out the other day that it was time for us to pull our forces out of Syria uh, and immediately got pretty clearly, some strong pushback, not only from Secretary of Defense Mattis, who himself is a four-star general, but also from the other four-star active duty military personnel. So, And we've seen how President Trump backed down, back away from what he said was his intention. Uh, and again, not, not getting to the merits of either withdrawing from Syria or continuing a a U.S. military presence in Syria, this whole back and forth between Trump and the military raises some very interesting questions about, well, who is in charge? Who's really making policy here? Uh, And it's pretty clear that it ain't the president. 
Do you think that's unique to the notion, this sort of widespread notion, at least publicly, that because Trump was unprepared for office uh, when he arrived in it, uh, at least in a sort of intellectual sense or in a sort of historic, the sense of historical understanding, that the military is able to exert more control over the civilians now? Or do you think that that was true perhaps during the uh, Obama administration as well? I think it's a continuing theme. Okay. Now, it manifests, it manifests itself in different ways. Sometimes it's more obvious, sometimes it's more uh, subtle. Mm-hmm. But to your first point, you know, we don't have presidents. The people we elect come to office without having any significant understanding of war and statecraft. What, what did Bill Clinton know right. about how the world works? You know, what, what did George W. Bush, Barack Obama... Uh, now, those guys, uh, I think particularly Clinton and Obama, were smart. They could learn quickly. All three of them, maybe, maybe George W. Bush even more than the other two, were wise enough to listen to their advisors rather than simply get up in the morning and you know, toss off a tweet but this is what I feel like today. But none of them particularly, none of them brought to office any real understanding of statecraft and, uh, and, and more specifically of, of war, mm-hmm. as far as I can tell. And indeed, I think in all the cases, uh, there was civil military conflict. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's recall the first issue out of the gate when uh, Bill Clinton became president in 1993. He had campaigned saying that, let me president, and I will issue an, uh, an executive order that will permit uh, uh, gays to serve in the military. I will do for, for, uh, for gays what Harry Truman did for blacks, because Harry Truman had issued an executive order desegregating the armed forces. Now, of course, that had met with real resistance, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Clinton's proposed executive order met with real resistance, so much so that he had to back down. He didn't issue that executive order. And we, got, we ended up with this policy of don't ask, don't tell as a, as a, a compromise solution, but really a compromise solution d- devised to camouflage the fact that the generals had forced the commander-in-chief to back away from something that had at least as far as Clinton supporters were concerned, had been uh, one of the major components of his, his run for the presidency. So, so this kind of stuff happens all the time. Uh, and I think that, and this is one of the things I've written about uh, to absolutely no effect, uh, it, that they're really, I think, from, from, for the health of our democracy, there is a need for... Americans to be more aware of this continuing struggle uh, between the military and the and civilian authorities about who's driving the policy mm-hmm. uh, because it's out there as a continuing factor. American, American people say, well, we know that there will never be a military coup in this country, and I think that is true. Uh, and, and it's good, mm-hmm. uh, but at the same time, because there will because the, the military itself, the officer itself knows that it will never 
undertake a coup, that, in a sense, allows, becomes an excuse for all kinds of other mischief mm. uh, below the level of trying to overthrow the government. Right. But nonetheless, uh, I think reprehensible conduct that really undermines the, the principle of civilian control and it happens over and over and over again. Right. So, so what you're saying is that the military benefits equally from the pretense of civilian control. Absolutely. Uh, so long as there is no public, uh, the public is not aware of the. Risk the military of doesn't. The, we don't. Military doesn't want the, the 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 pulling and hauling to be written about uh, in the Washington Post. Moving now towards this idea of American power, then, um, how did your ideas begin to change? Um, after after Vietnam and while, while you're in the service and then after you leave the service, how do we distinguish the, the overextension of American power in Vietnam from the overextension of power in the Middle East or what you call America's war for the greater Middle East? Um, when did you start to develop ideas of the overextension of American power uh, that led you to believe that, that Reinhold Niebuhr was sort of the... The, the truest voice when it comes to American foreign policy? I think the honest answer to the question is, I don't know. I mean, mm -hmm. this is all sort of incremental. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, uh, when I came back from Vietnam in the summer of 1971, by that time, it was clear we weren't going to win by any definition of the term. Uh, you know, I was a serving officer, so it would have been I believed a bit inappropriate for me to somehow join the anti-war movement. Uh, nor, nor did I at the time think that the anti-war movement had it all right. In retrospect, they had it a lot more right than the, than the than the supporters of the war. But I wasn't prepared to say that at the time. You know, I had uh, when I went to graduate school, I started writing a dissertation, well, centered on the U.S. military experience from roughly the Spanish-American War to World War II, and uh, I became aware of the imperial dimension of U.S. policy even before World War II. So as a result of my graduate study, I became more open to an imperial interpretation of U.S. policy. Wouldn't say I had fully embraced it. And you undertook that graduate study when? Uh, after, after? In the late 70s. Late, late 70s, 70s, yeah. I think, I think that the, the closest thing to a real turn came for me as a result of the end of the Cold War. When, right, right, right as the Cold War ended, that's when I was getting out of the Army. And you know, for somebody of my generation, this wouldn't be true of everybody in my generation, for many of us, I think, First of all, we thought that the Cold War would never end. It would just go on forever. And so the, the fact that it ended was quite surprising. Mm -hmm. I certainly was not intellectually prepared to understand the implications of it ending. That said, I had, n not, not explicitly, but implicitly, tacitly, come to believe that the Cold War was an emergency. Mm -hmm. And the things that we were doing were emergency measures. 
And that by implication, if the Cold War ever did end, not that I expected it to, that the emergency would end. And when the emergency ended, some kind of normalcy would be restored. Again, I want to emphasize, I had no idea what that would mean. Well, the Cold War did end. And if there was a normalcy that occurred, it was, it was an imperial normalcy. Hmm. You know, there's a heck of a lot of self-congratulation after the Berlin Wall went down. Maybe the greatest intellectual manifestation of that was Francis Fukuyama's famous article, The End of History, which was a sort of, you know, we won. But what followed was an increased expectation of the rest of the world coming around to our way of doing things, now considered to be all but inevitable, and more importantly, increased, increased willingness to use American military power to coerce the people who hadn't got the memo about doing things our way. So this began, uh, really began December 1989 when uh, George Herbert Walker Bush overthrew Noriega and Panama, quickly followed by the Gulf War of 1990-91, a response to Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. That was followed by, that was operation by, followed by Operation Provide Comfort, uh, uh, intervention to support the Kurds, Intervention in Somalia, intervention in Haiti, intervention in the Balkans, increased willingness to drop bombs and missiles here and there, all this during the Clinton administration, meaning prior to 9-11. Then 9-11 happens, and we've been involved in really multiple wars ever since. Right. So I began to say, well, where'd this come from? And what I concluded was that my default explanation of the roots of American behavior uh, had been wrong. And that other historians of the 20th century, like Charles Beard and William Appleman Williams, who had made an argument about American imperialism. Their argument was largely informed by a sort of an economic perspective. You know, as they, they interpreted U.S. behavior through a lens of economics for the most part. And I began to say, yeah, there's some, we are, this is our, our behavior, we are an empire. And our, our behavior has been imperial for decades. Our, our, imper our behavior was imperial going back to the Mexican War. Mm. Niebuhr comes in because it was Niebuhr who gave me an appreciation in the irony of American history about the importance of American exceptionalism and all this because when we engage in imperial, imperialistic behavior we deny it's imperial we tell ourselves that the real motivation has to do with the American mission to spread liberty and democracy and human rights, that we're not doing this because we have any you know, low 
ambitions on our part. And I found his account uh, compelling. That's why I, I continue to think that Irony of American History is the most important book ever published on U.S. foreign policy. If you really want to understand why we do what we do, the place to begin is with uh, Niebuhr. Right, and so the end of the Cold War, which happens in historical terms relatively uh, quickly. Um, yeah, and surprisingly, blink, blink of an eye. Provides this sort of shift in an intellectual paradigm, and you have people like Fukuyama famously yeah. declaring the end of history. But history is an interesting term when it comes to Niebuhr because um, one of the central tenets uh, that, that you recognize is the how he talks about the indecipherability of history and the illusions of uh, uh, any uh, class which believes in its own virtue being able to manage its own history and the irony being that um, one who relies too much on its own on, on their own virtue is going to produce vice right. um, sort of unconsciously. Yes. Uh, that's how he defines irony in this context. Mm -hmm. So can you elaborate upon that notion of, of having an illusion of being able to manage history and how U.S. policymakers after uh, the end of the Cold War have persisted with this illusion beyond that emergency state that you described? Yeah, I mean, I, of course, Donald Trump it doesn't have that illusion because Donald Trump doesn't have any theory of history worth uh, considering. Right. But if you if you take seriously, and I think we should take seriously, the claims made by people like Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama, those three are the my in my framing. Those are in my framing. There was a there was a period of time that we can call the post Cold War era. It's mm -hmm. not a good name. The post Cold War era begins in 1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall, and it ends in November 2016 with the election of Donald mm -hmm. Trump. And in between, we have three presidencies. I mean, George Herbert Walker Bush is really a kind of a transitional figure. He manages the end of the Cold War. He, he uh, 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 initiates the post-Cold War period. But his, his mark mm -hmm. uh, is insignificant in compared to his three successors. Those three successors, in my framing, are the presidents of the post-Cold War period. Right. Clinton, George W. Bush, and Obama. And if you take, curious, take seriously what they said, and again, I think we should take it seriously, they made the case for the United States now being in a position to manage history. Mm. They knew what history intended. I mean, during the Clinton era, I think the principal theme in that regard was globalization. Mm -hmm. you know, after, with the passing of the Cold War, we're now in a position to create an open world. In this open world, people, goods, capital, ideas will move quickly. The result will be to create vast wealth for everybody, especially for us. Globalization is going to transform the world, Clinton believed and Clinton said. The transformation will work primarily to the benefit of the American people. 
He's succeeded by George W. Bush, who I don't think took office with any actually serious worldview. I don't even know why he ran for the presidency other than the fact that his father had been president. But for George W. Bush, 9-11 changed everything. Right. He had said he had said back in uh, 2000, you know, elect me president and we'll have a humble foreign policy. I'm not going to be involved in this nation-building stuff. 9-11 happens and he gets up the next morning and he's become Woodrow Wilson reborn. And you look at his speeches that he gave in... Uh, late 2001, 2002. I mean, look at his speech, his second inaugural address, for heaven's sakes. And uh, right. he, he clearly believes, he's a believer himself, so I don't use that word lightly, he clearly believes that God has called upon the United States right. to eliminate evil. So whereas Clinton's Focus tended to be. I mean, he, Clinton is using American military power frequently, but fecklessly. But his principal preoccupations, I think, are in the realm of political economy. George W. Bush's concerns are in the military realm. It is by using the military instrument forcefully that will bring about change. We will bring history to its appropriate end. And, and Iraq, of course, is the place where all that's going to begin. I mean, I, I, my argument is that Iraq was... We, we, we invaded Iraq not because Iraq was a danger, but because it was an opportunity. Hmm. Because Iraq was weak. Because, because the people around Bush had persuaded Bush that the process of not simply toppling Saddam Hussein, but the process of transforming Iraq into a liberal democracy aligned with the United States was going to be relatively easy and relatively cheap. A massive miscalculation. But nonetheless, that's, that was the, the intent of the exercise was to use Iraq as a demonstration case mm. and, to, and to thereby enhance American power and clout and influence and put us in a position to bring about the transformation of the rest of the region. You know, Iran, Syria, Saudi Arabia, everybody. Everybody was going to become like us. That's what that was what they intended to do and it didn't work. Right. I'm sorry to interrupt your your um, characterization of the, the Clinton to Bush to Obama uh, narrative, but I wanted to ask in what way does Iraq play into the narrative of what you call the war for the greater Middle East going back to uh, to Lebanon in 1980. Uh, what what piece does that play in America trying to ex well, that's exert when it, control over that area? So so that's a different argument. Right. So the, the argument that I make in my book called America's War for the Greater Middle East is that the penchant for intervention and for relying on military power mm -hmm as the preferred instrument of policy in the Islamic world, mm -hmm. that we should date that from Jimmy Carter's promulgation of the Carter Doctrine in 1980. Mm -hmm. It's important to emphasize that Jimmy Carter didn't understand the implications of declaring the Persian Gulf a vital U.S. national security interest. He didn't know exactly how all that was going to, what was going to happen. Regardless of what he intended, however, 
that became a trigger for militarizing U.S. policy in the Islamic world. Prior to 1980, the whole Middle East, from a, from a U.S. military point of view, had been an afterthought. Right. Beginning that, at that moment, the Pentagon, or the national security apparatus more broadly, starts to position itself, gear up for war, facilitate intervention, not necessarily knowing what interventions are going to happen. But what we do know is that beginning in 1980 up to the present moment, we have a whole series of interventions all over the Islamic world. Mm -hmm. And my argument is, in order for us to understand all that, we need to, we need to begin by saying all of that activity constitutes a war. It's not simply little random, unconnected episodes. So the narrative in my book tries to, tries to tie them all together. Whether I do that successfully or not, mm -hmm. you know, it's up to the reader to decide. Right. But my argument is that everything that happens beginning with Operation Eagle Claw, and that's the Carter-directed intervention to try to feed, uh, free the uh, hostages held by Iranian revolutionaries, that all the way up to where we are today. You know, fighting ISIS, continuing to fight in Iraq, U.S. troops are scattered all over Africa. Bombing happening so frequently it barely even makes the papers. And, and drones as well. You know, well, drones is now simply a, 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 new, a new means uh, to, to, yeah. to, to, to do that. I think all that needs to be seen as a, a war. And if you see it as a war, and you say, well, how's it going? Right. And the answer is, well, obviously not very well. Right. I mean, we're, we, we, you know, we, we have achieved some, in a sense, operational successes, like Operation Desert Storm. But the purpose of war is peace. The purpose of war is to achieve your political objectives and then not, not fight anymore. Right. And yet, if you look at this entire period of time, all we've done is simply to create, create disorder and instability and spend money and kill people and have our own people killed. Right. Uh, it is a multi-trillion dollar episode that has produced almost nothing that is useful. And, and, and so the, the, the point of that particular book right. is to say, isn't it time to think about what the heck, where right. this is leading? Right. So, so returning to this periodization of the post-Cold War era from Clinton to Obama, um, we're sitting with a copy of the Reinhold Niebuhr book, The Irony of American History, on the desk, which has a quote on the front from Barack Obama saying, one of my favorite philosophers. And I think the influence is apparent when you talk about Obama's rhetoric of, uh, of the 2008 campaign and of moving eventually to what he called a light footprint. But in what way does Obama, despite his rhetoric, continue the trend that you were identifying in that periodization? Well, I mean, he, so he runs for the presidency. He says, elect me president and I'll get us out of the stupid Iraq war, and I'll win the Afghanistan war, which he said was a necessary war. So he wins, and uh, he continues the drawdown in Afghanistan, which George W. Bush had initiated. I mean, the, basically, the war there had become politically unsustainable. The American people were fed up with Iraq, I think. That's, that's, why, that's why the Democrats won both houses of Congress in the 2006 off year election, and that's one of the reasons why Obama won in 2008. Remember, he was running against a very distinguished member of the United States Senate, far more experienced, 
far greater record of accomplishment than Obama had, referring to John McCain. And, the, and one of the key differences was Obama says, elect me president, I'll get us out of Iraq. McCain says, elect me president because I was right on the Iraq surge and we can win this thing. The American people could have said, we believe John McCain. We want him to be our commander-in-chief. They chose otherwise. So Obama continues the drawdown. According to the schedule that had been set by George W. Bush, by the way, so that when U.S. forces leave in December 2011, and of course this becomes a controversial decision because everything falls apart, but he was doing exactly what George W. Bush said that George W. Bush would have done had George W. Bush gotten a third term. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, Obama escalates the war in Afghanistan. So just as there had been an Iraq surge, there now is going to be an Afghanistan surge. We're up to 100,000 troops in Afghanistan by, what, 2010? Mm -hmm. And uh, we spend a lot of money, we kill a lot of people, we sustain a lot of casualties, and uh, it obviously does not succeed. Moreover, what we have is uh, o Obama uh, putting his own kind of trademark uh, on, on, on the the prosecution of the war for the greater Middle East, and that is a reluctance to commit large-scale ground forces, because that's how you get lots of casualties, and that's, only, that's the only time American people notice anything, mm -hmm. is if there's lots of Americans being killed. Right. So his preference is for air power. This is at a time when uh, you know, armed drones, the, the technology is becoming, is maturing, mm -hmm. uh, so we have this huge escalation of drone attacks, other airstrikes, increased use of U.S. Special Operations Forces. They're very d skilled, talented, disciplined, and able to go in basically conducting what are the equivalent of raids and get out without, uh, without significant casualties. Mm -hmm. Again, keeping, keeping it politically, keeping things quiet. Right. And, and we also have, of course, the intervention in uh, Libya on Obama's watch overthrowing Gaddafi and turning that country into uh, a mess. So the war continues. And the bottom line is the war for the greater Middle East continues under Obama. He, he continues it in a way that uh, reduces U.S. casualties, but without producing anything like decisive results. Things just continue. And, and really, in a geographical sense, uh, expand because it's under Obama that the military footprint begins to, I think, probe more deeply into uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Right. You know, why are we there? Well, right. Who knows? Uh, but so, so the in other words, but I mean, in other Sorry. words, although although Obama, I, I think Obama genuinely believed believes that he's a Niborian. Mm -hmm. uh, I think probably that does reflect his intellectual framework, but he didn't start from scratch. Mm. You know, he, he inherited wars. Right. And that's going to necessarily limit your freedom of action. Right. And so even with a Niburian in the, in the uh, uh, White House, this military enterprise that I believe Niebuhr himself would have roundly condemned, uh, it continues. And, and that, that's one of the reasons why, of course, it's interesting to see what's going on with the Trump administration. Here's a guy who's not a Niborian, 
uh, but who certainly subscribe to the notion that the wars are stupid, not serving the interests of the United States, elect me president, and I'll just, either we're going to win or we're just going to get the heck out of it. We're, we're yeah. done with all that stuff. That's a total, complete waste. He becomes president, uh, and it's pretty clear. Uh, a, we're not going to win. B, we're not going to get out. I mean, the, he's already signed off on a continuation and a, a small escalation of the Afghanistan war. Uh, he, he wants to get out of Syria. He's probably not going to get out of Syria. Uh, so this this war, I mean, one of the interesting things here is we're the most powerful country in the, in the world. We're the most powerful country in all of history. And yet for some reason, you might think, one would think that power would confer choice. Mm. You would think that. A powerful nation can do what it wants to do. It's the weak nations who don't have choice, one would think. And here we are, we're the most powerful nation in the world, and yet somehow it seems that we don't have any choice. Somehow it seems that, well, we just got to keep trying. We got to keep trying to pacify Afghanistan. 17 years later, there's no evidence that we're making any progress in Afghanistan, but by golly, we have to keep trying. Uh, and within... You know, insider political circles, that's, I think, that's not a particularly uh, controversial proposition, even though from an outsider's perspective, it just doesn't make any sense at all. I, I mean, that's a really powerful notion that the, this whole thing that you mentioned, one would think that power would confer choice. Um, Niebuhr addresses the sort of paradox of power and the paradox of the United States becoming uh, a world power after World War One in this interwar period, because while he is critical of the overextension of U.S. military force, he's also critical of the isolationists in the interwar period. Um, he says that they did not understand, this is a quote, they did not understand the disavowal of responsibilities of power can involve an individual or nation in even more grievous guilt. And so how in, you know, using... Well, I don't, I don't think, I, I have long since come to believe that... Uh, this whole notion of isolationism is a complete fiction. Mm, because we've, of we've, US never, we've, never been, we've never been isolated. Right. Now, right. In, in, the, in the interwar period, right. we've got U.S. forces in the Philippines. Mm. We've got U.S. forces in China. We've got U.S. forces in Panama. Mm. We've got U.S. forces scattered around the Pacific in the territory of Hawaii and some of the little islands. We've got, got a U.S. base in Cuba. Uh, for a good deal of that time, we have we're occupying places like Nicaragua, the Dominican Republic, and Haiti. Right. So you sort of scratch your head. How how is that isolationism? It's not isolationism. It's imperialism. Mm. What what gets called isolationism in the twenties and in the thirties is a is a reluctance to put put the United States in a position where it's going to make it's going to make the same mistake it made in 1917. That is to say, get involved in a European war. Mm -hmm. Now, the people who did not want to get involved in a European war uh, turned out to be wrong. That is to say, they misconstrued the threat posed by Nazi Germany, which was a threat to the United States. It was a threat to civilization. Uh, and therefore, the argument that we needed to avoid involvement in what became the Second World War was deeply mistaken. Mm -hmm. That said, uh, it seems to me one, one ought to view with some sympathy uh, that argument. Uh, 
What happened in 1917-1918? Well, what happened was that at the behest of Woodrow Wilson, the United States abandoned what had been a deeply held principle that European wars were not our business. Adherence to that principle between the revolution and 1917 had been one of the things that had enabled the United States to achieve all it had, had achieved during that interval. We had, from, from the 1780s up to 1917, guess what happened? We became the richest country in the world, the most secure. Huge success. And, and, and avoiding involvement in European power struggles was at least one factor, not the only factor, contributing to that success. So Woodrow Wilson says in 1917, no, 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 no. We are called upon to sort out this problem. And in sorting out this problem, we're going to make an end to war. This is, this is going to be, it's a big war, it's a terrible war, this is going to be the last war. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, when we end this war, we're going to make the world safer democracy. And because we are going to win, we, we, the United States, we have no ulterior motive here. I mean, we did, but his argument, we have no ulterior, and, and therefore we, when we win the war, we are going to be in a position to reorder the world. Mm. And I have a plan to do that. My plan is called the 14 points. So we, go, we enter the war. We're in the war for like, what, year and a half? 106,000 Americans die. Now, they don't all die in combat. Let them die in the influenza epidemic of uh, 1918, 1919. But nonetheless, what's the, what's the total population at that point? Probably 120 million? 106,000 Americans die in a period of about 18 months. And that would be okay if then what resulted was an end to war and the world made safe for democracy. But that's not what happened. Because we were not able to dictate the peace. The 14 points did not become the basis for creating a new order after, because, because the Brits and the French, French in particular, who believed that they, and correctly believed, they had fought a heck of a lot longer than we had and suffered more than we had. They believed they should have some say in what kind of, and, they, and their world order, their image of a world order was not the same as Woodrow Wilson's. Right. Well, and also because of the domestic opposition to, to taking on that role, though. I think that's what we're referring to when we talk about isolationism. I mean, I think when people think of it, they think about Henry Cabot Lodge and the defeat of the League of Nations. So it's not just a reluctance to engage militarily, but a reluctance to engage well, politically. Well, I don't, but I don't, I mean, I don't, I think that's, I think that's uh, un, unfair as well. The United States is involved. Uh, not, uh, involvement's the wrong term. The United States does not turn its back on the war in the 1920s. Okay. We have the in Washington Naval Conference of 1921, mm, undertaken at the behest of the United States of America. Charles Evan Hughes convenes leaders in, in, in Washington. Why? In order to try to agree to a system of disarmament. This is focused less on Europe than on the Pacific, but a system of naval disarmament that will bring about stability in the Pacific. Mm. Well, again, it didn't work. But, but is that isolationism? I don't think so. Well, in 1928, we've got uh, uh, Secretary of State Frank Kellogg is one of the mainstays in the Kellogg-Briand Pact, an, an agreement, agree, signed agreement of all these nations to say, we're never going to go to war again. Did it work? No, of course not. It didn't work. But, but that is not a sign of... We have, we have the United States involved in all kinds of negotiations related to uh, war debts trying to contribute to economic stability. 
let me emphasize, I'm not saying that American statesmanship in the interwar period was successful. No, it was not successful. It resulted in, it ended in catastrophic failure of a second world war that was in both the Pacific and in Europe. But to describe, describe it as wrongheaded, describe it as naive, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, but it wasn't isolationism. Mm -hmm. it wasn't, the United States was not an isolated country. And, and one of the reasons to, even though, I mean, this is an, this, you know, I, can't, I can't get this argument to, I can't persuade anybody about it. Because the emphasis on isolationism as somehow this default uh, posture, I think then ends up concealing the true theme of the United States of American statecraft. And the theme is expansionism. What we did or failed to do between 1920 and 1939 is a heck of a lot less important than how we get from 1783, when the Revolutionary War ends, to becoming the most powerful and richest country in the world. How did this, how did this little tiny republic of 13 states, how did it end up controlling the midsection of North America all the way out to the Pacific Ocean? How, how did it acquire all these colonies? How did it end up with US forces scattered hither and yon? How did it, by the, by the 1920s, have the most powerful navy in the world, which it did? Well, not the most powerful, probably on a par with the Royal Navy. And the answer is because the United States had been engaged in a, in a strategy of expansionism. Mm -hmm. Now, it was, it was not, there was not some sort of document in the president's drawer that said, here's, yeah. here's how we're going to do all this. The, the, the expansionism was an opportuni opportunistic expansionism. Right. You're seizing, seizing opportunities as they appeared. But that's what U.S. foreign policy is about expansionism, not isolationism. So when, you st when people start to say, well, you know, the, 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 and you still see it in op-ed count over and over and over again that the American people are just hankering uh, to return to isolationism. It never existed. Mm. Uh, and it's a, it's a, it's it, 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 it it's deeply wrong to perpetuate that myth, in my view. Right. So I guess I asked the question. That's a, that's a really nice elucidation of why isolationism never existed. But I asked the question about responsibility specifically because Niebuhr identifies both the limits of power, but also the historical necessity, the, the historical happenstance that, that gives the United States this power. And I want to ask, rather than just a descent to... Uh, United States policy, what is the positive implication of the United States having this power? How should, if the Niburian descent is accurate, how should the United States wield this power in a responsible well, way? Well, but I mean, uh, you're not going to get the answer to that question from Reinhold Niebuhr. Right. Well, well, what, you're gonna get from, what you're going to get yeah. from him is, is a eloquent description of the predicament. Right. The, right. the predicament that, 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 that power imposes responsibility. And yet, the possession of power so frequently leads to the misuse of power. Because of self-interest. 
Yeah, well, because of self-interest, because of the illusion of being uh, chosen by God uh, to, to play a great historical role, because of the difficulty of discerning the complexity of the world for all kinds mm-hmm. of reasons. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, I mean, that's both his, his the, it's a brilliant insight, but it's not a, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if we could get Donald Trump to read that book <laughs> and understand it right. and embrace it. I'm, I'm not sure how that would then affect his thinking about, let's say, Syria, uh, where it does not appear that our power is going to bring about peace and harmony in that country. On the other hand, we're so deeply involved there and everywhere else in the, in the, in, in the neighborhood it would be, arguably, it would be irresponsible and perhaps even immoral just to say, well, we're done, we're out of here, uh, and let things happen. So the art of statecraft, I think, is to uh, figure out how to navigate uh, between those, you know, those extremes, the extreme that says, well, we're just going to keep wielding our power the way we, and, and the other extreme of saying, well, the hell with it, we're just walking away. Right. And, and there is no easy answer. I mean, every, that's where everything is context. Right. You know, everything is, is history up to that point. Everything is, uh, relates to culture, relates to what other countries are trying to do. Right. Uh, that's the art. And, but that's not what he, that's not his purpose. Yeah. It's not to It's not to provide a positive a theory. And I was, I, yeah. was asking, I was asking, you know, once you take into account the Nimburian theory, you know, for instance, um, there's, this, there's this big... Uh, criticism of Obama's rhetoric versus being in, in office. And the thing is that when you have someone who has this sort of prophetic voice, whether it be someone who eventually attains power or not, um, it, it, it calls the nation to a specific direction. But then once they're, they're vested with power, there, there is a certain responsibility to wield it. And so once you take into account the Nebrian descent, what my curiosity is, is how do you then distangle the United States from this uh, this this mess, this notion, uh, uh, what you what you said that one would think that power would confer choice, and we we don't have any choice. How do we reclaim the capacity for choice? And that that would be my final question as we sort of wrap up here. Well, I mean, I I do believe at the end of the day that the the preeminent moral responsibility of our leaders is to act on our behalf. It is our well-being. The, 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 when the president uh, is inaugurated, he doesn't he doesn't swear an oath to do what's good for humankind. Mm-hmm. He, he swears an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States doesn't talk about what's the well-being of humanity. It talks about if you look at the preamble, it talks about 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 creating an order that will secure certain goods for the American people and for our posterity. It's not just for us now but securing the blessings of liberty for our posterity. So to me, that's the first order question. American interests need to, need to be the primary determinant of American behavior. That said, there are moral issues that have to be taken into account. And there, I think, the question is, if, if, if the moral responsibility, if, if there was a responsibility we have today to the people of Syria or to the people of Afghanistan or to the people of Iraq. What's the most effective way to acquit that responsibility? 
Is it to continue with airstrikes? Well, airstrikes haven't worked so well so far. Or is it to take concrete steps to alleviate the suffering of Syrian, Afghan, Iraqi people? People who have lost their homes. People who don't have jobs, may, go hung may be going hungry, may need medical care. Maybe that's what we should be doing rather than engaging in further military undertakings. Well, then you say, hmm. If we owe something to these people who suffer, at least in part, because of our actions, I think there's two questions come up. One is, what's the priority? Who, to, to, to whom is our debt greater? Syrians or Afghans? Afghans or Iraqis? Iraqis or Vietnamese? Why not Haitians? Because we've been involved in all these places where there continues to be suffering. And that's a tough question, I think. You know, right now, when, when, whatever, whatever's in the headline, right now, Syria's in the headlines, so people would say, oh, well, we got to do about the Syrian people. But, I mean, nations that are not in the headlines. Yeah. I mean, El, El Salvador is a good example. I think it's the highest murder rate in the world. Uh, U.S. was militarily involved, intensively involved, back during the Salvadoran Civil War. Civil War, I guess, is over. Mm -hmm. Country's in a mess. Do we owe something to the people of El Salvador? So that's one question. And the other question is, well, is what's it going to cost and who's going to pay? It, it is ironic that every year the Congress is asked to provide money to support the Pentagon, and they appropriate hundreds of billions of dollars so that we can keep dropping bombs on Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and whatever the hell. Maybe we need some portion of that money to go to try to address the moral consequences of previous misguided American military actions. And of course, that's never going to happen. Because oddly enough, not, not oddly enough, I mean strangely, we, we the American people have no problem whatsoever with our Congress appropriating hundreds of billion dollars so we can go drop more bombs. But our, our willingness to appropriate a thousandth of that to assist people in need doesn't exist. Uh, that's just a conversation that's not happening. Mm -hmm. right. Well, uh, I wanted to thank you for this time on a Saturday. This is really uh, insightful. Uh, and um, thank you for your work that you do to try to at least persuade people of, of these points of views in your writing. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. Hey, podcast listeners, this is Kobe again. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Uh, I learned a lot from it, and I hope you did as well. We wanted to thank Dr. Basevich one more time. If you are interested in having discussions like these, you can do that. You can go to bu.edu slash htc and find the common thread under the Programs tab in order to apply. Uh, thank you so much, and until the next time, we'll keep looking for the common thread. Thank you.